0: Well good morning everybody um, it 's good to be here in St Joe. This is not my first time here at Wyatt Park Baptist. Uh, my first time was the uh, men 's weekend, and everyone was dressed in hoodies and jeans and I thought today i 'll bring the suit out. I think the last time I wore this suit was to a funeral, so my apologies it won 't be a funeral today, I hope. Um, but my name is Ross Ferguson. Uh, I am not American. Hopefully, you can tell that enough by now. Uh, hands up, how many people have Scottish heritage in their lineage? Hands up. Okay. For everyone with your hand up, this is what 100% Scottish sounds like. Okay? So I know you're all Scottish, but this is what 100% Scottish sounds like. Um, I, I pastored a church, uh, several churches in the UK for uh, up to nearly 10 years. And then for the last couple of years, I've been living in Kansas City, uh, living, working, and studying at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, they're studying my MDiv, taking a little bit of break from uh, full-time ministry. I'm here today with my wife, Miriam. We've been married 15 years this year. Um, I know I don't look old enough. Um, uh, if you're trying to work out the maths, uh, i will confuse you even more uh, when I say that I've got my three kids here as well. Uh, Leah, my eldest, she's 11. I have twin girls, uh, Eve and Abby, they're nine. And if you're wondering who the random chap is that we brought with us, he's Cam. Uh, he is a student at Midwestern Seminary, and whenever I go and preach at different places, I always like to try and bring at least one student with us to uh, show them what it looks like to, to be on the road, so to speak, to help churches And to preach God's words. So hopefully today we're going to delve into the word of God and we're going to learn things together. If you could grab your Bibles, we're going to be turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, Really just want at this stage for you to grab your Bibles and to turn to 1 Peter 3. Uh, We'll be continuing your series uh, in 1 Peter uh, and I'll be going from verse 13 onwards. But if you grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 3, as you do so, let me pray uh, and then we'll begin. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come to your word and we can learn from your word. We thank you that it is living and it is active. Father, we thank you that it is not a dead word, that it is a word for today. Father, I thank you for the passage that we're gonna be looking at today. And Father, we pray that you would help us learn from it, that we would grow from it. And Father, we thank you for the team here, for the pastors, for, for all those on the staff, for those who volunteer. Father, we pray uh, that this weekend that they would be blessed that they would be encouraged. And Father, we pray for Jeff and we pray this weekend just as he takes this morning off from preaching here, Father, that you would bless him and encourage him. And we pray this in your name, amen. I was thinking this week, life I've learned is never fair. Uh, Recently I went to a car wash, Uh, I'm a big fan of clean cars, and I went to a car wash and I bought the Triple X Gleam car wash, Uh, and this is an important aspect. When you go for a car wash, you want certain things. So the Triple X Gleam car wash gave me several things I wanted, one of which was the car would be waxed at the end. Second, the wheels of the car would even be cleaned and waxed. Third, a microfiber rolling towel will go right over the car and dry it for me. Now the most important aspect of the Triple X Gleam car wash is the triple-colored foam that your car is covered with as you start, because we all know that one color is not enough. We need three colors to go over our car. Well, on this particular day, I paid $30. I love how they do this. Three colors, $30, $10 per color over your car. And I was ready for my car to be cleaned. Well, as we drove through the car wash, uh, lo and behold, something didn't happen. What do you think didn't happen? There was no three colors. And I'm driving through thinking, this is not the car wash I paid for. And then halfway through the car wash, no wax dropped from the ceiling, and now I'm left with streaks down the side of my car. And to tip me right over the edge, that microfiber towel did not spin and did not go over my car and dry my car. And I came to the end and I thought, what I paid for was a triple X Gleam multicolored car wash, and what I got was some mediocre water sprayed on my car. I was ready to turn around and go right to the beginning again and say, hey, I didn't get what I paid for. That is until I saw a line of 20 cars ready for their car wash. And I thought to myself, life I'm learning is never fair. Truth be told, that's not the first thing that came to my mind. The first thing that came to my mind was to roll down the window and scream at all the cars to go and try somewhere else. And then my mind went to life I'm learning is never fair. Have you ever experienced something like that where you just think life isn't fair? Have you tried to do the the right thing only to receive negative feedback? Have you shown care and compassion to someone only for them to uh, send out and spread out spiteful rumors about you? Do you look around this world, and I think especially over this last few months and this week, and think evil just seems to be winning? And good is hard to even define now. In fact, we are now questioning, what is good? Uh, More specifically, this week, have you been thinking that when you signed up to the Christian life, you were thinking you were going to get the triple X gleam wash? You were thinking you were going to get the best thing? And then as you live this Christian life, what you were thinking was going to be comfort and joy actually became suffering and pain again and again. And again. Have you got to that point in life where you think, life is just not fair? I think to some extent, all of us have experienced suffering. There might even be some in the room or even some watching online today that are in the midst of this suffering, and they're asking the question, why? Why does God allow life to be unfair? Why does God allow those who are seeking the triple X gleam, the very best from life, why does God allow them to get the very worst? Friends, the better question than why is how. How will we respond to the inevitable suffering that we are going to face in life? Will we react like I did at the car wash and want to just scream at the world and demand our way? Or is there a better way of responding to suffering and injustice? Uh, Today, we're going to continue in your series in 1 Peter, and I've entitled my message this, A Victorious Response to Suffering. A Victorious Response to Suffering. You see, what we're going to learn today is that suffering should be expected, News for you today, if you've signed up for that Christian life thinking you're going to get just comfort and joy. Today, expect suffering. But how are we going to respond to it? I'm going to show you today in our passage that Jesus and the gospel allows us to have a victorious response to suffering. One that is not marred by frustration and anger and battle, but one that brings great hope the hope that is in us. And as we go through our passage today, I want you to see three things in our passage. I'm a preacher. There's always three things, okay? It has to be three. Here's the three things. Three exhortations for expected suffering. Exhortation just means an emphatic encouragement. So three things I'm emphatically encouraging you to do when suffering comes your way. Here's the first one, and then we'll delve into verses 13 and 14. The first exhortation is expect suffering, but do not fear. Expect suffering, but do not fear. Read with me at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We'll pause there for a moment. Uh, We learn in chapter one, uh, right back at the beginning of your series, that Peter is writing to Christians who are in the midst of a trial. In fact, they're almost expecting the fiery trial to increase. He writes to encourage them to remain resolute in their faith, to show that the trial is not in vain, and to bring confidence back to their faith. As he gets to chapter 3 and from verse 13, he shifts into a new section of writing. Specifically, he's shifting to show that to suffer for the sake of righteousness is a good thing. See, the context in verse 13 where he talks about being zealous for what is good. Then in verse 14, he says, for righteousness' sake. Understand that Peter is not talking about suffering as the consequence to sin, but suffering in the pursuit of what is right and what is good. It is an important distinction to make here because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, the most extreme suffering. When you commit evil acts, then you can expect consequences of your sin to be death. Death to your joy, death to your contentment, death to your life, both earthly and eternally. Sin brings suffering. So today, before we go into our passage all that much deeper, I want you to ask yourself, as you consider the suffering you're experiencing now, is it because actually you're walking away from the Lord? Is it because actually there's something in your life that you're daily returning to that is sinful before the Lord? Because friends, if that's what it is, that's not this passage. Because sin brings suffering, and it's suffering because you've wandered away from God, Peter's talking about a different suffering. He's talking about a suffering that comes your way for doing what is right, for pursuing what is good. A question is posed in uh, verse 13, right at the beginning. Is there anyone that can harm you if you seek out what is good? If Christians live as they ought, why would anyone seek your harm? That is what this question is. Why would anyone do that? Uh, throughout Scripture, uh, this context is phrased, Proverbs sixteen seven. when a man weighs, please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It seems from verse 13 that the good works of a Christian means you will be free from harm. But then we get verse 14, and we read that even if you should suffer. Verse 13 asks the question, how could you ever come to harm? And then verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer. So rather than it being an impossibility to suffer for doing what is good, it becomes a reality, an even common reality to suffer as you pursue goodness and righteousness. But most importantly, what Peter is trying to get here with the words even if, even if you suffer for what is good and for what is right, even if that comes your way, it will not and it cannot overcome you. That is the difference between suffering for sin's sake, because suffering does overcome you when you're sinful, but suffering for goodness' sake will never overcome you. Righteousness will always win when it comes to fighting against evil. We see in verse 14 when Peter reminds us what the outcome of the suffering is. Verse 14, we will be blessed. It seems backward, doesn't it? That those who pursue good will suffer. Yet the reward for our suffering is to be blessed. It was this very lesson that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And who is the kingdom of heaven? Christ Jesus himself. Blessed in both contexts means someone who is highly privileged. The suffering comes at a privilege. The individual who suffers for doing what is good is privileged before the eyes of God. Yet when in suffering, we don't feel like that, do we? we don't feel blessed when someone attacks us for our Christian faith. We don't feel blessed when as a church we suffer. We do not feel blessed when we suffer for the sake of righteousness. In fact, our natural tendency is one of unhappiness and a sense of injustice where we declare life is not fair. Have you ever shared the gospel with a friend or a colleague or even a stranger only for them to receive and to give you vile comments back? 1 Peter 4.14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and of God rests upon you. A friend of ours was recently disciplined at work Uh, She works in a coffee shop, and she spoke about her Christian faith to a customer. The customer happened to also be a Christian. The customer also happened to be a church member, and she simply was asking how church was that weekend. She was disciplined because a member of staff said they felt unsafe because she shared her Christian faith. A simple conversation with a fellow Christian led to a warning from her workplace 1 Peter 2:19 For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly Contrary to how we feel and the experience in the moment those who suffer for goodness' sake are blessed Look at what Peter next says at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Uh, For a moment, I want you to, to think about these verses in reverse. Go backwards through 14 and 13. It goes something like this. I am not troubled or fearful, for when I suffer, I am blessed. When I do for Christ, what harm can really come to me? And Romans 8 declares this very thing. Romans 8 tells us, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? "'Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, "'or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword.'" The question in Romans 8 and the question here in 1 Peter 3 is rhetorical. Persecution cannot separate us from Christ. Famine and nakedness cannot separate us from Christ. Danger or sword cannot separate us from Christ. Friends, when you are in Christ, there is nothing that separates you from Him. And that is why we need not fear, because even when the worst happens in this world to us, nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus. Wyatt Park Baptist, you are to expect suffering when you do good. But I guarantee it is coming for you if it's not already here as a church. And when it comes, 1 Peter 3 demands of us, do not fear. For Jesus, the mighty warrior, your your heavenly savior, that the conqueror of both sin and death is fighting for you. Let the world take your comforts. Let them think they are winning. Let them come with their insults and their vile comments because your heavenly reward is eternally secure in Christ Jesus and it awaits you, which is why we need to get our eyes off the suffering, off the attacks and place them onto Jesus because that is our victorious response to when we suffer, to declare with one voice, if God is for us, then what can mere mortals do? It is this victorious response that we learn we can need, not fear, when suffering comes. Instead, we can actually turn to embrace the suffering, because in the suffering we know that Christ is being magnified in us. So we've seen that we can expect suffering, but we need not fear. Uh, Let me take you to our second exhortation for expected suffering, and that is expect suffering, but respond gently. Expect suffering, but respond gently. Uh, Read with me verses 15 through 17. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, what is your normal response? Uh, These verses give us the godly response, really how we should respond. Notice how in verse 15 we are to first honor Christ as holy. Notice where we're to do this, in our hearts. Each individual is to commit their entire self, that is, in their hearts, their entire self, to honor Christ as holy, as perfect, as set apart. In other words, when suffering knocks at your door, you do not curse God. You do not blame God because He is righteous. His ways are good. His means of completing His ways are good. He is holy, and with conviction, we worship His holiness, And look what happens in response to that worship. We have a command. Verse 15 tells us always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We worship God, and then we have a command to defend the faith. And notice that the way we are prepared in defending the faith is in our worship to our holy God. That is our preparation. When you come on Sunday mornings, you might not realize this, but you are preparing for the week ahead. That is why we must come together, because we must come together under the Word of God to prepare our hearts to worship the Holy God, for when we go out into this world, that is what prepares us. It is placing God in His rightful place, rightfully sovereign over our lives, that allows us to have a defense. Now, some may think that this note, this verse, it's often taken in this context, that it's an apologetic defense. And what I mean by that is it's defending the faith through argumentation and and debate with someone that might bring questions. Uh, This is commonly said when somebody says to you, uh, well, Christians can't do that. We will come back to this verse and say, well, I must defend the faith. But the context of this verse is not apologetic. It's not about debating and arguing faith. Instead, note where you are to be doing this defense. Number one, you're to do it before anyone, anyone that asks the question. Note also when it's to occur in verses at 15 and 16, it is to occur always. We are to be able to defend the faith to anyone and at all times, The believer in Christ might be required to defend the faith at any point to any person. You see, it is conversational, not confrontational. This is not a rallying cry to whip each other up and go out and confront the world. This is a command to, in your daily conversation, defend the hope that is in you. Here's likely what Peter is getting at. When you live rightly before God, when you stand for goodness in this world, you will inevitably experience suffering. You're not to be fearful and you're not to be troubled. We're to continue to do what is good and live out our lives for Jesus. Our response to suffering will be questioned. Why do you keep doing good when people insult you? Why do you stand on your beliefs even when you're disciplined at work? Why do you respond to people with love and compassion When all they do is revile you. It is this questioning that we are to be prepared to defend against. We're to be prepared to say the hope that is in us. What is the hope that is in us? The holy God who we worship in our hearts. Our hope is Jesus. Our pleasure is Jesus. Our reward is Jesus. And so, when people say, how can you keep living like this when you suffer? Our response is not, let me tell you about Christianity. Our response is, the hope that is in me is stronger than your insults. The hope that is in me is Christ Jesus Himself. Sadly, because we skip over the the worship of God as holy, we tend not to respond to our suffering in this way. We tend not to respond with the hope that is in us. Instead, we uh, tend to to go towards argumentation, to debate, and we become the antagonist in the situation. The, The sweet little Christian that you know in church becomes the raving lunatic on a Facebook community group as they try to defend with anger and debate about what Christians should and should not do. And you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about because I just have to say certain words and I know that there's people in this room that their hearts start skipping extra beats. The words are politics. The words are COVID-19. The word is war, sexuality, freedom. I just have to say these words and there's certain people in this room and watching online who are already thinking about how to defend the faith on these matters. I wonder if we took a a look at all of your social medias, how many of you have become that raving lunatic on these topics in the answer to defend the faith. That is not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, when you suffer for the name of Jesus, how will you respond? Respond with the hope that is in you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is why Peter reminds in verse 15 to respond in gentleness and respect. This is not about you being right, but it's about winning the soul of an unbeliever through the winsome act of defending the faith. This should not be a surprise to you. It is in Scripture all the way through. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 2 Timothy 2, 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Gentleness leads others to Christ. Respect leads others to Christ. Raving lunatics on social media damages the faith, not defends the faith. I wonder, do you have a a clear conscience on this matter? Can you honestly say that when you have done good, when you have sought righteousness, when you have shared the gospel, and you have been questioned for that, that your conscience is clear that you were gentle and respectful in response. Note verse 16. Look down at your Bibles at verse 16 again. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When people slander us, when they write us up for talking about our faith at work, when they refuse to buy from our business simply because of our faith, when they mock us for going to church on Sunday, when they question our intentions, they're put to shame, not us. And let me be clear, who puts them to shame? Does verse 16 say that you're responsible for putting them to shame? They put themselves to shame for they mock what is good and they revile Christ in us. Friends, our job is not to become this militant defender of the faith running around trying to shut down the world. Our role is to live out our faith, come what may, and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Vengeance and shaming of the mockers is not our task to undertake. And it's really important you get this because I think a lot of the suffering we think we're facing is actually because of our confrontations, not of our conversations. I think some of the suffering that we are going through is because in our hearts, we just want to be right. That is not what this passage is talking about. You see, consistency is key. Our daily lives are to be marked by the hope that is in us. Our daily conversations are to be marked by the holiness of God. Our daily interactions on social media are to be marked by our worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews uh, knew this task and knew it well. He said in Hebrews 13 and 18, "'Pray for us, for we're not sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things.'" we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Friends, do you desire to act honorably in all things? A clear conscience leads to honorable behavior in all things. The Christian life is not just sitting, sipping coffee in a comfortable chair at church on Sunday. The Christian life is daily living for Jesus in this world, and I guarantee it, it will bring suffering. So how are we going to respond? What are we going to do about that suffering when it comes our way? Look at Diane again at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. When evil people suffer for evil actions, they will experience the consequence for their evil actions. Yet if you suffer for doing what is right before God, you will be blessed. The righteous person knows that their suffering has benefit. It blesses them, it compels others to look to Jesus, and it magnifies the name of Christ. Yet these benefits are destroyed if we respond to this expected suffering with hate, with arrogance, with harsh words, and a demeanor that says, it's all about me being right rather than God being worshiped. Uh, Recently, my wife and I uh, tried a, a kind of cultural engagement uh, we watched the Netflix series Quarterback, uh, which follows three quarterbacks in the American uh, NFL. And I have no idea what happens in an NFL game. I don't really understand how a one-hour game is a three-hour TV program. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, but being in Kansas City, uh, we know that we've got to support the Chiefs. It turns out the Chiefs are pretty good. Um, so, uh, And if you don't support the Chiefs, well, that's your sinful action. You'll receive a consequence for But when we're watching this uh, quarterback series, it follows three quarterbacks through the season, and it follows their lives, and uh, it kind of shows the the behind the scenes. And one such individual they followed was Kirk Cousins. Uh, Kirk Cousins, who clearly on this show showed his faith throughout each episode. You see him pray. You hear him sing hymns to his children. You see him serving the needy. You hear about his conduct is exemplary in his team and in his life, and his attitude is of deep care. He is the only quarterback in that series who took a day off for his family, specifically to care and to love them. He is known for doing what is right. What's interesting, though, is he's also known for consistent ridicule. He can't handle the big games. He can't handle national TV games. He's not good enough. Time and time and time again, he's ridiculed for it. And in this show, he shows a little bit of that emotion behind how he suffers through that ridicule. Really interestingly, at the end of the series, they show Kirk Cousins being given an award. He was given the award for the best role model in the NFL. In response, he stood up at this large event that was on TV before all of the NFL, and he said this, all this will go away. What is much more important to me is my Christian faith. Friends, Kirk Cousins defended the faith in all gentleness and respect, and he is highly rewarded before our Lord Jesus because he did so. Now, he should play for the Chiefs, but that's his own deal. (laughs) But there is someone on a platform that had every opportunity to attack what is wrong in this world. And instead, he says, no. Let me show gentleness and respect. What about you? How are you responding to the expected suffering, to doing what is right? Do you have a clear conscience this morning? How do you feel about your conversations this week? I don't ask these questions to make you feel guilty. Far from it. I ask you this so that I can point you back to Jesus. Because he is the only answer when it comes to our suffering. Because we're doing something that is right. Which leads me to my third exhortation. My third emphatic encouragement for you. When expected suffering comes your way. Here it is. Expect suffering, but look to Jesus. Expect suffering, but look to Jesus. Let's read together from verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. As you read from verse 18, did you see the shift in the focus? Peter went from suffering to Jesus. And this is absolutely key to understand in our passage today. The answer to how we are treated for righteousness sake is always to look to Jesus as the example. And so let's just work through this quickly together and see what the example of Jesus is. Jesus suffered to the point of death. Read verse 18 again. Why did he suffer? What does it say he suffered for? He suffered for sins. He bore the sins of both the righteous and the unrighteous. There's not one person that Jesus refused to help. He pursued the good and he pursued the evil. And in one righteous act, he provided a sacrifice for everybody. And I want you to get this this morning, that there is not one person in this room or online that is so dirty, so vile, so evil that Jesus would reject you. He took his eternal power and in one single act bore the sins of mankind. And why did he do this? Verse 18, to bring us close to God. And listen to these words from Colossians 1.22. He has now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, the vile, the evil, the horrible person, to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus pursued this good act of presenting you blameless so that he can change a vile sinner to a loved friend from a dead person to an alive person in the spirit. And you see that he suffered for goodness sake. He suffered for you and me. He suffered to the point of death so that we might have life you see, Jesus was no victim in this. He wasn't shouting and raving at the world as if he was a victim. He was and is the victor, which means his death brings life and he doesn't need to defend his actions because he knows what he's doing. He is taking the evil person and making them whole again. I want you to think about this, friends. It's hard being a Christian in this world, is it not? In the UK, just recently, a woman was arrested outside an abortion clinic for just praying silently in her mind. She was, in fact, arrested twice. Last year, there was a a high school football coach here in the US who was fired from his position because he walked out to the 50-yard point and he prayed before the game. It is getting harder and harder to live out our Christian faith in this world. Yet, friends, have you suffered to the point of death? Have you suffered to the point of losing everything? Oh, you might have lost some freedom, you might even have lost some finances, you might have even had some of your comfort taken from you, but have you suffered scourging? Have you suffered death? Have you suffered uh, nails in your hands and nails in your feet? Because as we look to Jesus, we come to Him with our suffering, and we suddenly realize He has suffered far more for us to bring us closer to God. Have you ever considered that the suffering you're going through right now is in fact bringing you closer to God? Have you noticed that when you suffer, your prayer life goes up? Have you noticed when you suffer, those worship songs come on to K-Love radio and rather than being annoyed by K-Love's giving drive, you're in fact blessed by the songs you're listening to? Have you ever noticed when you're suffering that coming to church and seeing a friend smile at you has such strong encouragement to you? Because suffering is slowly bringing you back to God. Let's keep going in our passage. I have no idea when I started, by the way, so you just need to kind of buckle up and we'll keep going. Uh, Verse 19 and 20 talk about Jesus and talk about what he did upon his death. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is a complicated verse, and I'll do my best here. It's complicated because we don't actually have evidence in Scripture to exactly know what this means. It likely means that Jesus proclaimed to the fallen angels that he had been victorious. We get the context from Noah. We we get told here that God was patient towards evil. But in one act of bringing the flood, he brought death to evil and raised up eight lives to safety. Noah and his righteousness was saved. Through destruction of evil, there was deliverance of righteousness. And so now Jesus goes to the fallen angels and declares, through your destruction, through my death, through your destruction, I have brought righteousness. I have brought salvation to those who would receive me. It is a double act. It could be summed up this way through the death of Jesus, evil is punished. Through the death of Jesus, righteousness is lifted. It is a double act occurring. Salvation from death, salvation to life. And Peter explains it in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the waters of baptism speak of death for the Christian, because we die to sin, we bury our sin, and we are raised with Christ Jesus. Titus 3.5 says this, he saved us not because of works done by us and our righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, in His righteous act of dying on the cross, of being buried and then rising from the dead, regenerates us, renews us, washes us clean. It brings death to sin and life to the sinner. And He responds to His suffering. What does He do? He goes and proclaims victory, when was the last time you proclaimed victory when you suffered? When was the last time you came to a prayer meeting and a prayer time and went, praise Jesus, they've stopped buying from my business, it's about to close down, I'm about to lose my livelihood, but praise Jesus, because for righteousness' sake, I'm being brought closer to God. Do you remember right at the beginning of the sermon, we talked about being blessed for goodness' sake? Look at verse 22. Verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus, after completing his task, after suffering the deepest, worst suffering you can imagine, is now rewarded with great privilege he sits to the right hand of God, victor over sin and death. He is over all things. Angels, authorities, and powers now answer to Jesus. He suffered, but he endured, and now he reigns. That is his blessing. I hope you're starting to really get this this morning, that when we are suffering for doing what is right, when we are ridiculed, when we are mocked, when we're challenged, when we experience hardship for the name of Jesus, we join him in his high favor. Our prize is to be like Jesus. Therefore our prize is to be close to God, to sit at his right hand. That is why we need to look to Jesus when we suffer because it is there that we learn the truth. The truth is that through Christ, we are children of God. We are co-heirs to the throne. We are friends to the Son of God. We are washed. We are renewed. We are regenerated. We are highly exalted, and we are eternally secure, and our suffering proves it. The truth is, what can mere mortals do against that? What can take us out of the hand of God? Nothing. What can beat us down so we can't get back up? Nothing. What can rob us of eternal security? Nothing. What can silence our gospel witness in our society, in our time? Nothing. Because of Jesus. So don't look at the attacks. Don't look at the suffering. Look to Jesus, because in Him, nothing separates us. You see, in our passage today, we've seen three exhortations. We have seen that you're to expect suffering, but do not fear. We have seen to expect suffering, but respond gently. We have seen to expect suffering, but look to Jesus. And as we've seen that, you might be one of three people. You might be sitting here and thinking, easy for him to say; He doesn't know what I'm going through. If that is you, then I implore you to say that Jesus sees you. He knows what you're going through. He saw how the Israelites suffered And he came to their aid. He heard the cry of Habakkuk, and he showed him great and mighty things. He saw you in your suffering. He sees you in your suffering. And he says, I have suffered for you. You are not alone. Your suffering is not in vain. Look to me, your friend, I will bring you through it. Friends, I don't need to understand your suffering to know that Jesus does. You might be sitting here in a different camp. You're you're tired of the suffering. It's taking everything out of you. It is hard to just even lift your eyes to Jesus. You're on your knees not because you're in prayer, but because you can barely stand the suffering any longer. In your tears and in your exhaustion, you just want to cry out to God when will this end? Friends, let them know how you feel. Psalm 91 tells us how God will respond. These are are the words of God to the one who cries out to him when they just can't do it anymore. God says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in the trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him salvation when he calls out to me. If you can't lift those eyes any longer to Jesus because the suffering has just beat you down, call out to God and he will rescue you. Now, you might be in the third camp where you have responded to suffering by giving the world back as good as it gives you. You've become that warrior that your opinion is right. You fight tooth and nail to prove yourself right and to show everyone else is wrong. You have become known for your harsh words and your incessant frustration at this world. Those words I mentioned earlier, politics, COVID-19, war, sexuality, freedom, all those are buzzwords that just spark frustration in you. Then friends, if that is you, I want you to hear the words in Matthew's gospel coming from Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let the anger and the frustration be washed away, be regenerated and renewed. Live as one as gentle and as loving and as caring as Jesus, because you know the victory is in Him, not in you. I want to close out today with a quote, and this quote comes from Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary for over 50 years, and this is what she said in respect to suffering. We want to avoid suffering, death, sin, and ashes, but we live in a world that is crushed and broken and torn, a world God himself visited to redeem. We receive his poured out life and being allowed, get this, the high privilege of suffering with him may then pour ourselves out for the sake of others. Wyatt Park Baptist, expect suffering, but do not fear. Respond gently and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Peter had the courage to write to this church and to remind them that suffering was coming their way. Father, I thank you for the comfort that we read in your word that your son Jesus knows exactly what it feels like. Father, we just think upon the the sham um, judgment that was placed against him. When people insulted him, spat at him, mocked him, scourged him, laughed at him, he walked silently to that hill. He took every beating, every question, every insult because he knew he was victorious. Father, help us to do the same. Help us accept the suffering. Help us undertake it and respond in a victorious manner. For those in the room that are fearful, they're questioning whether their livelihoods will be swept away. They're wondering if they're gonna be left with any friends. They're wondering if their comforts will be taken away. Father, show them the victory of Jesus Christ. For those, Father, who just can't lift their eyes up anymore, they're done, they're tired, they're fed up, they're exhausted, Father, strengthen them. Strengthen them as you strengthen Jesus as he walked to that cross. As you put strength in his legs as he took each step towards that cross, knowing the pain he was going to suffer, but knowing that it was worth it. And Father, for those who are living their lives as harsh, right people, just determined to prove themselves correct, humble them, Father. Show them that when Jesus was questioned, he often stood silent. Show them the love and the gentleness of Jesus who walked to the woman at the well, a woman that the world hated, and showed her compassion and love. Father, as a church, I pray selfishly that the Y Park Baptists do not go through suffering, but I know that if they do, you're going to bring them closer to you. You're going to conceal them in your arms, and you're going to protect them. So, Father, help, ask, help them not ask the question, why, but how. How will we respond to the suffering for doing good? I pray this in your glorious name. Amen.